faster. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Well, good evening. Thank you, Pastor Tim. And uh, yeah, it is definitely a, a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, it is kind of funny how things work out. And I don't know if it was just the providence of God or the providence of Mitch Glazer, but either way, uh, because Mitch is the one who initially suggested I come and tag along with Rich. So if it wasn't for him, uh, you guys would probably be better off. Anyway, uh, let's, uh, let's just open with a short word of prayer, and then we'll uh, really jump in to uh, the topic. And I'll tell you a little bit about uh, me and my work in Brooklyn and, uh, and what we do there. So let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful again, Lord, for all uh, that you, you do for us. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love, uh, that you loved us so much. You sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'll bless us as we uh, spend time in your word tonight. May we, uh, may we truly be changed and, and uh, renewed after this experience in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as Pastor Tim said, uh, I do live in Brooklyn, New York, which is just, you know, a small town just east of here. And, uh, it's a, come on, that's a joke. No? <laughs> uh, New York City, uh, you, you guys probably know, I don't know uh, if you do, but outside of the land of Israel, New York City is the largest Jewish community in the entire world. Uh, and there are uh, estimates that there are about two million Jewish people who live in New York. So where we live in Brooklyn, it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting place. We live in a section of Brooklyn known as Midwood. And Brooklyn is one of the more residential of the five boroughs, and it has you know, a whole lot of Jewish people that live there. So me and my wife, Joanna, we, we live in Brooklyn. We live um, uh, among a pretty eclectic Jewish community. There's a good amount of Orthodox Jewish people. Uh, there's also a strong contingent of uh, Russian Jewish people who have you know, immigrated from the former Soviet Union and, and come to the U.S., and uh, there's a sizable Syrian Jewish community there as well, and they're generally more Orthodox, and there's some ultra-Orthodox, and then you have some secular, and there's Israelis. It's just a very Jewish place where we live. And neither me nor my wife, Joanna, are Jewish. We uh, have been called, and I'll probably, uh, maybe in the second session, share more about how that came about. Um, uh, so anyway, we live in Brooklyn. We have two small children. We have a five-year-old little girl whose name is Elisheva, we, uh, which is a Hebrew name. It means God's oath or God's solemn promise. Uh, we call her Ellie for short. And then uh, she's five now, which kind of blows my mind a little bit because it just goes by so fast. Everyone's right. You know, everyone always says that. And then we have a two-year-old little boy whose name is Judah. And um, they're home right now with, uh, with my wife, Joanna. And uh, we live there. And the primary responsibility that, that we have uh, is planting a messianic congregation uh, that had, for English speakers. Uh, right now, Chosen People, we have a Russian-speaking Messianic congregation in Brooklyn. Uh, but me and my wife, and we're working alongside another couple who's on staff, and we're trying to plant this English-speaking Messianic congregation together. So it's, uh, we're very, very new. We don't even have a name yet. Uh, we kinda, we're not even in the infant stage. I, I like to describe it. We're in the embryonic stage still. So we have a solid core group of people uh, probably about 20 to 25 people, and some other staff workers and some people who aren't affiliated with Chosen People. And uh, we've been meeting every Friday nights. Uh, and really, we, we uh, want to use this community as a place, a solid believing community where Jewish and Gentile believers can come together 
and worship God and, and uh, through the Messiah Jesus in a more Hebrew context uh, and provide a place where it's okay for a Jewish person um, to come and feel at home and feel in a comfortable environment uh, where they may hear the gospel and see the gospel being lived out uh, amongst our community. So really that's the, the, uh, uh, the main work that we do in Brooklyn. And you know, there's all kinds of other things we do, but I don't want to you know, chase too many rabbits tonight. Uh, we'll be doing plenty of that once we get in. So um, <clears throat> uh, our mission statement at Chosen People Ministries is worded like this. We exist to pray for, evangelize, disciple, and serve the Jewish people. And we incorporate all of those into our work. And, uh, the, you know, it's kind of, our, our ministry is kind of like a two-edged sword. You know, first and foremost, one edge of the sword is reaching the Jewish people, praying for, evangelizing, discipling, and serving the Jewish people. That's one edge of the sword. The other edge of the sword of our ministry is uh, kind of like a teaching, educational ministry, where we come to our brothers and sisters in Christ and teach and share about the Jewish roots of Christianity and the Jewishness of Jesus, and the Jewishness of the Gospels. Because if we all stop and step back and really think about it, what other root is there to Christianity? Right? Where else did Christianity come from? It didn't come from Islam. It it wasn't just made up out of thin air. It came from Judaism. And Jesus was Jewish, and all of his disciples were Jewish. And really, when we read the New Testament, it wasn't until probably 10 or 15 years after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of the Messiah, that we see the first Gentile come to faith in the Jewish Messiah. And from there, obviously, it it spread worldwide, and here we are today. Now, we come and we share and we teach about the Jewishness of our faith. And one of the uh, uh, messages that we like to share, one of the uh, teachings that we like to emphasize, is God's ongoing plan for Israel. God's ongoing plan for Israel, the people, the nation, the land, okay? Okay? how God is not done with the Jewish people. He has not cast off the Jewish people. Uh, And when we look at what's going on, when we watch the news today, we see that there's all... I'm sorry. When we watch Fox News today... That's a joke. (laughs) I always like to throw that out there. Kind of gauge my audience a little bit. You guys are good. (laughs) Anyway, when we, when we watch the news today and we see that, you know, in the nation of Israel, even though it's about the size of New Jersey, uh, coincidence? I think not. That's a joke, too. Uh, even though it's such a small state, uh, about the size of New Jersey, such a small country, it, it, it's really a, a controversial, controversial place. You know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding Israel. Who's, who has the right to the land? Uh, you know, um, uh, do the Jewish people have a right to the land? Should they be there? Is, is Israel an apartheid state? You know, all these accusations that are thrown and, and all these uh, things that go on that affect not just politics, but, uh, but everything, you know? Um, everything in the world. Uh, all really center around the nation of Israel. So for us, what we like to come and share about and, and teach about is how do we as believers, as disciples of the Jewish Messiah Jesus, what approach are we supposed to take when we, uh, when we look at what's going on in the nation of Israel and with the Jewish people in the world? What view are we supposed to take? How are we supposed to view things that are going on there? Because obviously we want to take a, a biblical viewpoint, right? And what is that biblical viewpoint? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, we'll talk a, a whole lot about it. So 
What we're going to do tonight, uh, if you have your Bible, uh, get ready. We're going to really trace, we're going to spend a lot of time going through um, God's relationship, God's covenant relationship with Israel, with the Jewish people. And we're going to try to really uh, put together that biblical viewpoint of Israel. Because we have to realize that it's more than just a political situation, more than just a political issue uh, that's going on there. There are, uh, you know, there's a whole spiritual realm, uh, things working in the background, the unseen that's going on. Uh, And a lot of it has to do with what's going on in Israel. So we need to kind of, you know, take the physical and the spiritual and understand it through the lens of Scripture. So what we're going to do first is we're going to trace God's relationship with Israel. And we're going to really begin with Abraham. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Here we have God setting apart one man, okay? One man through whom he would eventually bring the Messiah, okay? He would use this one man and make promises to this man. And these promises would lay the foundation for how God himself would enter into time and space and take on human flesh to achieve redemption and to achieve restoration. And it all starts with this one man, Abram, at the time. So I'll read it, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse." And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we have God making this promise to Abram. First of all, it's a calling and a promise. He calls Abram to leave everything that he has known. Okay? His, his father's house, his land, his country, his relatives. Leave everything and by faith take this journey with God to a land that God was going to show him. So... God calls Abram out, and then he makes these promises, these I will statements. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So these are, you know, pretty significant promises that God is making here, right? Um, And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God is making these promises now to Abram. And one key aspect of this Uh, these promises that God is making uh, that's important for us is that these promises are unconditional. Okay? What do I mean by that? It means that God is making the promise. Okay? And there's nothing that Abram or Abraham has to do in order to hold up his end of the bargain. Okay? It's an unconditional promise that God makes to Abram. So God makes this unconditional promise that no matter what, he will do this. He will uh, make Abram a great nation. He will bless him. He will make his name great. Abram will be a blessing. uh, And he will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And that in Abram and in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So unconditionally, God makes this promise. uh, He lays the foundation here, this covenant. Now, when we jump ahead to Genesis chapter 15 we see that God continues to, to reveal more and to unfold more about the, the promises 
that he's making here with Abram. And in Genesis chapter 15, toward the end of the chapter, God gives the uh, boundaries for the land, okay? A physical land that God was giving to Abraham. He says this, beginning in verse 17, it had came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Okay, that, that, uh, that's the tail end of the, uh, the covenant ritual that God was performing for Abram. Uh, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Everybody got that? But the, the important thing here is that God is making this promise now and he's, he's promising to give this land to Abraham's descendants. Okay, it's a perpetual uh, promise here. It's ongoing And again, this is unconditional. This is an unconditional promise that God is making to Abram. That to his descendants, to his seed, God would give that physical land within those borders to Abraham and his seed forever. Okay? Unconditional. All right? So whose land is it? Whose land is it? It's God's, right? Who did God give the deed of the land to? The Jewish people who are the descendants of Abraham, the, the promised descendants of Abraham. And is it conditional or unconditional? It's unconditional. Okay? So ownership of the land, God gave ownership of the land to Abraham and his descendants forever, unconditionally. So that part of the promise, that part of the covenant agreement that God made with Abraham and the Jewish people Concerning the physical land of Israel, it's an unconditional promise. Ownership of the land is unconditional. From God to Abraham. Okay? If it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I am. (laughs) Now, there's more to the relationship, the covenant relationship between God and Israel. uh, Because every agreement that God has made with uh, Israel, with the Jewish people, it hasn't always been unconditional. Okay? There's certain aspects of their relationship that are conditional, okay? And we see that come about toward the, the, uh, the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is a pretty amazing book. The way Deuteronomy is laid out, um, <clears throat> it's laid out uh, in an ancient uh, form of contractual agreement. It's called a suzerain and vassal treaty, Okay? Suzerain and vassal treaty. And uh, that's how the, the structurally the book of Deuteronomy is laid out. And the, the suzerain and vassal treaty was worked out like this. The suzerain was a conquering king. Okay, So say you have one nation who goes in and conquers another nation. So the suzerain is the conquering nation. The vassal is the nation that's being conquered. So after the suzerain wins the battle and... and uh, comes in and, and, and takes over things, they would strike an agreement where the vassal would submit authority to the suzerain. And the suzerain would, uh, w- would lay out in the agreement 
the stipulations, the, the terms of the agreement, the terms of the relationship between the two. And usually, well, always, it worked out much better for the suzerain. You know, the, the vassal would wind up having to pay taxes, would submit riches and gold and, and all kinds of things. Uh, <clears throat> and at the same time, the suzerain would then provide uh, protection for the vassal. Okay? So the vassal would come under the uh, domain, under the dominion of the suzerain. So part of the agreement was if the vassal submitted and, and uh, you know, submitted authority, then the suzerain would give blessings to the vassal. And part of those blessings would be protection. And part of those blessings would be peace, relative peace in the land, so that the vassal people could still grow crops and could still, you know, have a normal life. It's just now they would be submitting to a new king, a new nation. Okay, everybody got that? It's pretty straightforward, right? Well, that's how Deuteronomy is laid out. And the way Deuteronomy is laid out is the suzerain position is God. And the vassal position is Israel. And Israel is submitting to the suzerain, the king, God himself. And God, in return, says, if you agree to the terms of this agreement, this, this covenant that I'm making with you, I will protect you and things will go well with you. You will be blessed. But if you disobey, uh, then, then you'll feel my wrath. And that's what we find laid out throughout Deuteronomy, but specifically when we come to uh, chapters 27 and 28. Okay? And we don't have time to go through, to read through all of the blessings and curses here. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the important thing for us to see is that these blessings and curses are there. And these, this is the conditional aspect of God's relationship with Israel. God says, if you obey me, things will go well with you. And when you're in the land, if you obey me, if you will obey my commandments, if you submit to my authority, things will go well with you. Your crops will grow. Your women will bear children. And uh, you'll have peace in the land and, and all of these great things. And then God says, if you disobey me, you will experience the curse. Uh, your crops won't grow. There'll be famine in the land. Your women won't bear children. Your baskets won't be full of fruit. Things will go pretty bad for you. And then we see a big part of that curse, okay, that, that uh, uh, the, the bad part of the agreement is, has to do with possessing the land of Israel, God basically says, if you disobey me to the point uh, where I just have had enough, the punishment will be you being expelled from the land, okay? So possession of the land is conditional, but ownership of the land is unconditional, okay? So Israel still has the deed to the land. They always have. God gave it to them unconditionally. But whether or not they possess the land is contingent based upon whether or not they submit to the authority of the king, God. Okay? And we see that uh, pretty explicit in Deuteronomy 28, uh, verse 63 and forward. It says, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. 
And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall not find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. That's pretty bleak, right? And it, it's all, it goes back to whether or not Israel as a nation would submit to the authority of God. And when we look at the history of, uh, of Israel, um, we see that sure enough, uh, they experienced these things. There were points in Israel's history, when we read the biblical accounts, uh, beyond the Torah, beyond the first five books, where we see Israel experience great blessings, right? Uh, King, King David's time and King Solomon's time. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, a portion in 1 Kings chapter 4, I believe, where it's during Solomon's reign where it says everyone was at peace. Every, every man dwelt under his own tree. You know, it was this picture of peace and fruitfulness, almost a reminder of the Garden of Eden, okay? Uh, it wasn't ideal, it wasn't perfect, but Israel had submitted to the, the king God, and things were going well. And then we see other points in Israel's history where, as a nation, she rejected God. She turned her back on God. And rather than submit to God's authority and worship God and God alone, Israel began to fall into sin and idolatry. Right? It was a pretty horrible situation. Um, and God, uh, this is all part of the agreement that God had made with Israel. This was the terms of the agreement. So the, uh, Deuteronomy is really, like I said, laid out like this. And ownership of the land is unconditional. Possession of the land is conditional. Now when we come to Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see something that, uh, that sets Deuteronomy apart from those other suzerain vassal treaties from the ancient Near East, okay? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see really what I like to call the uh, prophetic, uh, you know, I forgot what I call it. (laughs) That's terrible. Um, I'm drawing a blank here. (laughs) Join the club, yeah. Can you catch that? No. Um, Oh, the template, the template for the prophets. Uh, forgive me. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we find the template that the prophets, all the prophets that would come after Deuteronomy, after Israel was in the land, they all followed this same kind of pattern. That's what it was, prophetic pattern, okay? And in that prophetic pattern, uh, we would find the prophets being sent to sinful Israel, Right? The prophets would be sent by God to Israel who was dealing with sin, uh, various different sins. And the, the message of the prophets was generally pretty consistent across the board. They would always come, they would point out the sins of Israel, whether it was idolatry, whether it was uh, taking advantage of the poor, whatever it was, they would point out the sin and this, the, the prophet would give a warning of judgment that was going to come. Uh, basically saying, if you don't repent, if you don't stop this sin, you will be judged. God will judge you, okay? And part of that judgment would, would eventually be being cast out of the land. Uh, and that was part of the, the message of the prophets. Uh, so they would point out the sin, they would give a warning of judgment, but then at the same time, they would reach out the hand of God to the people and say, return to God. 
repent and come back to God. God was really opening his hand to sinful Israel through the prophets, saying, come back to me. You know, you still have a a chance here. Come back to me. And whether or not they came back to God, uh, most of the time they didn't repent. But the prophet would go on and say, come back to the Lord. If you don't return, you will experience judgment. Okay? And that's, that's basically the message of all the prophets. Uh, but at the tail end of the message of all of those prophets, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or the 12 minor prophets, there would always be this statement of hope, this promise of hope that God would give to Israel, saying that no matter what, in the end, God's sovereignty, God's love for Israel would, uh, w- would prevail. And that Israel, in the end, would experience God's salvation. Israel would experience God's redemption. God would return the scattered people from the four corners of the earth and bring them back to the physical land. And after doing that, God would provide a spiritual renewal for his nation. That is uh, at the end, at the tail end of all of the prophets. Okay? That's part of their message. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that's what we find. So right after we read the chapters in Deuteronomy about uh, the, uh, the, the blessings and the curses and, and how things were, will, will be pretty horrible if Israel remains in sin, we come to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and we see this beautiful promise that God makes to Israel. And really in this chapter, it's, he's prophesying. God is predicting Israel's future. And he says that he will save them. He will redeem them. So let's read it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. Okay, so right there, God is uh, kind of shifting gears. The tone, the voice of the message is, is shifting gears. And God begins to say, these things will come upon you. All right, you will experience these things, the blessing and the curse. And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, From there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there, he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Okay? This is the mess. This is like the, like I said, the, the pattern that the prophets would follow. This message here in the, in the heart of the Torah, okay, the, the law, the first five books of Moses, we find this unconditional promise of salvation that God makes to Israel. And this salvation, the salvific promise that God makes to Israel involves two main aspects. It, it involves a physical return to the land. Okay, God returning, regathering his people from the four corners of the earth where they've been scattered. So physically returning to the promised land 
which God unconditionally gave ownership to Israel uh, through Abraham, in the end, after the blessing and the curse, after Israel sins, God will return them to the land and then he will spiritually renew them. And that's the picture in verse 6 of the Lord circumcising the heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Now, when we hear that term, that figure of speech, circumcision of heart, where do, what, what do we think of? Anyone? What comes to mind when you hear a circumcised heart? Paul, right? This is New Testament language. Paul uses the same terminology in Romans, okay? Uh, and actually, okay, just a side note here. There's a great book that came out not too long ago, just last year. It's called uh, Paul and uh, uh, Paul's Encounter with Early Jewish Thought and Deuteronomy by a guy named Lincecum. Uh, and it's just phenomenal. I mean, he, he lays out uh, how Paul and many early Jewish sources like Josephus, like Philo, and um, some of the rabbis uh, from you know, the early Mishnaic period, how they interacted with Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy was very important for Paul, and specifically Deuteronomy chapter 30 uh, and the Song of Moses. Okay, these are uh, really important chapters for Paul, especially when we read Romans, because in Romans we see Paul use this terminology, uh, this picture of a circumcised heart, and it's a picture of spiritual renewal. It's, it's a picture of uh, an internal change taking place and an internal renewal. And the way it's laid out here in in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, is we see God circumcising the hearts, not just of individuals, but of an entire nation. And which nation? Israel. And Israel that has been regathered. Israel that uh, has turned her back on God in the past uh, through sin. But in the end, God bringing them back to the land and in one fell swoop, bringing about this spiritual renewal for the people. Okay? Uh, and, and this really, like I said, this set the stage for the prophets uh, as we go forward in Israel's history. So just to summarize very quickly before we move on to the next uh, stage of, of our study time tonight, um, <clears throat> we've seen God set apart Abram, who eventually became Abraham, uh, and through Abraham, he would create a, a family Right? He gave this promise of the, the promised seed. So it went Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12. And uh, eventually through that one man, he would create that family. And through that family, you would have tribes. And through the tribes, you would have a nation. And through that nation, eventually would come the promised redeemer, the, uh, the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me. The promises, uh, part of the salvation promises that God made with Abraham when he was setting the stage for all this include promises to the physical descendants of Abraham, the, the people Israel, the Jewish people. And those promises include Israel turning their back on God and being cast out of the land and being uh, dispersed around the world. But part of that promise also entails and, and, and holds uh, this picture this reality of God reversing the exile and sovereignly and lovingly returning his people back to the physical land so that he can redeem them and give them salvation. Okay? So this is, this is the promise. This is the part of the promise. And this is part of the grand 
plan that God has uh, to bring about redemption and restoration for the entire world, okay? We who, uh, you know, not everyone here is Jewish, right? Some are, but uh, we from the nations, we have been, you know, we have a role to play in, in this, in this uh, salvation program, in this, this, uh, this amazing plan that God is unfolding, okay? And <clears throat> we'll talk a lot more about that as we go on uh, over the next uh, tonight and tomorrow morning, so... Any questions at this point? Any co- yes, sir. Yeah, it's Romans eleven twenty-five through twenty-seven. Uh, yeah, you, you're kind of stealing my thunder here, but no, I'm just <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, but yeah, I you know hope to to talk about Paul because in many ways when we read specifically Romans nine, ten, and eleven, those three chapters. Uh, it's almost like Paul is one of these prophets, okay? Because he, he uses that same pattern where he describes Israel's current condition of rejecting the Messiah, where he describes Israel's current condition of, um, <clears throat> as a nation rejecting the Messiah and, uh, in, you know, in a way, experiencing the wrath of God. But at the same time, uh, God working out and, and in his plan of salvation— using this time frame between Israel's rejection of the Messiah and Israel's ultimate acceptance of the Messiah upon his return, in between that, we find Paul talk about the ingathering, this great ingathering among people from the nations. And that's really what we've seen take place over the past 2,000 years. We've seen uh, predominantly the people who have come to believe in the Jewish Messiah and enter into the new covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Predominantly, we've been Gentiles, okay? And that's no mistake. It's all laid out. Uh, and that's also uh, part of what we find in Romans 9, 10, 11, but also in, Rome, in, in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. It's laid out in there that God would use uh, people from the nations to provoke Israel to jealousy, which, you know, is, is ultimately what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11 as well. So, uh, yeah, when Paul makes that statement in Romans 11 that, where he says that all Israel will be saved, he's, he's referring to this, this event, Deuteronomy 30, this, this uh, ultimate circumcision of the heart that the nation will experience uh, when they accept Jesus, when they accept the Messiah, uh, because it's, it's going to happen. God, God wrote it. God spoke it. It's, it's true. Any other questions or comments? Yes, sir. No, no, which is another good point. Uh, The question was, has Israel ever possessed the full promised land according to the boundaries that are given in the Torah? And the answer is no, they never have. The most that Israel has ever possessed was under King Solomon's reign, and uh, it was nowhere near from the Euphrates to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, from the Euphrates to the Great River in Egypt. So, which is another uh, good point for us, because if, how could God be done with Israel? How could God be done with the Jewish people if that promise is still pending? You know what I mean? If he never fulfilled that promise uh, to give that land fully and completely to Israel, how could he possibly be done with the Jewish people? That, that would make God out to be a liar, right? Or, or a false promise giver. So, uh, Yeah, I believe so, yeah, in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we probably won't see it in our lifetime. Well, I, we probably, right. We probably won't see uh, this side of Jesus' return. I'll say that. Israel possessing the full promised land. It's going to be when the Messiah, when the King, when the King returns. Any other questions? Comments? Okay. Uh, it's 7.22, it looks like, and we're slated to go to 7.30, right? More or less. Should we take a break now before we jump into the next portion? This is America. This is a democracy, right? <laughs> this is a Fox News audience. How, how's everybody? Yes, sir. Um, I would say no. I would say no. I mean, it's hard to answer one question, a question uh, and speak for all of Judaism all over the world. You know, there's no one answer. But the, the modern state of Israel, uh, I would say that no, they're not actively pursuing the fullness right now. Um, I think that's, that's kind of what you were asking, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, once you get into the religious aspect, yeah, you, uh, among Orthodox Jewish communities, uh, yeah, there's this acceptance that that's the full promised land. And some even, uh, as heartbreaking as it is, there's some uh, sects of uh, ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews who are total anti-Israel uh, because they believe it's an affront to try to politically establish a Jewish homeland before the Messiah comes. Uh, so I've seen these guys. They're, they're, um, uh, uh, they, they often protest at uh, certain gatherings that are pro-Israel. So in, in New York, uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a, a group that uh, put on a big uh, pro-Israel rally uh, near the UN. And I went there with, with a few friends, and sure enough, there was about 50 of these uh, Hasidic guys with the signs, you know, pro-Palestinian signs and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I gave a gift to... Yep, yep. So, you know, it's, uh, again, it, that's part of the reason it's, it's very difficult to speak uh, uh, for all of Judaism, you know, as a whole. And what, what does Judaism say about this? That? Because there's, there's, you know, it's a diverse... I think there's an old joke, you know... Uh, Five Jews, eight opinions, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. So, any other questions or uh, comments? So, I think I think we should break for a little while, and then uh, we'll come back, and uh, we'll we'll talk more about how this promise unfolds and and the ramifications for it all, and uh, we'll take a look specifically at one of these portions of the prophets and kind of see how it relates to the modern state of Israel. So, let's take a break. <laughs>